If you will open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. In just a moment, we're going to be reading this chapter. Um, I have sort of made this comment before. I'll prepare you for it a little bit today. I hope I can keep from uh, Tommy gunning you, so to speak. But uh, we have a lot of ground to cover today, so list fat, listen fast, and I'll try not to talk too fast. And this is actually, uh, if you're tired of hearing this, I just want to say that this is probably the biggest uh, section of material we need to work through today, and uh, then we won't have to go quite as fast on the remaining ones, but we are going to be looking at Genesis chapter 16, Genesis chapter 17, and halfway through chapter 18. And I don't like to give short shrift to the, to the Word of God, so I prefer to read as much of it as I can, and I will do most of that. So um, let's read, first of all, chapter 16, and then we'll talk about the lesson and, and what's in chapter 16 before we pause and read from 17, and likewise with the portion in chapter 18. All right, so in Genesis chapter 16, verse 1, notice the Bible says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant. So the word Egyptian there is, I did think I maybe didn't include this reference when I made this comment. Some of you might have wondered, but when I was talking about Genesis chapter 12 and, and Abram's trip down into Egypt and mentioned this is probably where they acquired Hagar, and this is why she's an Egyptian. And later in the record, you'll find that when she sought out a husband, uh, <laughs> yeah, right, a wife for uh, her son Ishmael, um, it was an Egyptian woman. So that, that's her background, that's her ties, and it mentions it here. Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and said to Hagar, servant of Sarai, Where ha have you come from, and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant you shall and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, which means he hears, and, or God hears, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be, watch this description, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So that phrase there, translated over against, has the possibility of a spatial or a local application. In other words, a geographic type reference where he's going to dwell. 
or it can also convey the idea of hostility. So it kind of works out a bit that way. The double entendre is probably attended. Um, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. This is verse 13. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahiroi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, so he got the message from Hagar, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So we'll end our reading here, and let's just have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into today's lesson. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. When we're reading stories that are from so many years ago, yet we realize they have not lost their relevance, and they certainly have not lost their power, and all due to the fact that we acknowledge this is your word, which you have preserved, so that we might have it to this very day. And Lord, we realize that we're told many things in the Bible, but we're not told everything. But we are so grateful for what you have given to us and for what you have selected for us to learn from. So in this hour today, although we have much ground to cover, we have a common theme between these chapters, something that we want to look at, something I pray you'll give me the ability to warmly and practically convey to people. Something, Lord, we all need to be reminded about and something that we all struggle with, I, I fear. And so I pray that you will help us today and that you will bless us and bless the other classes too and then our service to follow. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Well, thinking back to chapter 15, do you remember that phrase that I called your attention to where ESV translated, I continue chi uh, childless? And so we know some elapse of time has taken place, but what's really interesting about the section of material that we're going to dive in today, what I think really unites, see, why did you choose 16, 17, and the first half of chapter 18? Well, there, there's, a, there's a thread that unites all of this and a theme that unites all of this. And this is the fact that for the very first time, we actually have specific time references. These are the first specific time references that we have gotten now since chapter 12, when we were told that Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Okay, so that's a definite time marker. Let me show you what we have here. So, for example, Abram is 85 when the incident with Hagar takes place. How do we know this? Well, chapter 12, verse 4 is what I just referred to. It tells us that he was 75 years old when he left Haran and came down into the, what we would think of as the land of Canaan. Chapter 16 and verse 3, we just read that. So I want to point all these time references out to you so you can see where I'm, where I'm headed with this. So after Abram had lived 10 years, okay, let's do a little quick math. Not like the government does it now, but 75 plus 10, what's that give you? 85. So he's 85 when the incident with Hagar takes place. He's 86 when Ishmael is born. We're told this at the end of the chapter, so notice verse 16. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Do you notice how we're now picking up these definite time references, leading us to believe that the time factor is something that we really need to pay attention to here, and that's what we're going to be doing today. Get this, from 86 to 99, how many years? 13. 
And that's the next time reference we see when we get to chapter 17. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old. And it says it down again in verse 24 at that chapter. Abram was 99, or Abraham now is 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And so the same thing kind of happens when finally... Isaac is born another year of age, so to speak, has passed for him, so he's 100. Okay, but I just want you to think think about this for a moment. Try to think of some event in your life. What were you involved with for 10 years? And did that seem like a long time to you? What have you been involved with that's longer? 24 years, 25 years. From 75 to 99. These are long periods of time. And so what it sort of goes to is thinking about another test. And I told you that we would be looking at a lot of these. Do you think your faith would be tested if you were waiting for something for 24 years? If you were praying about something for 24 years? That's not unprecedented. In fact, you think about people like George Mueller who prayed for his brother who was not saved for years and years and years, I think more than 24, and I believe if I remember the story correctly, did get saved, but not until after George Mueller passed away. And there are things that go on in life like this, and it is a real test, because I don't really think that waiting comes easily to any of us. Now, if I've misjudged you, please don't take any offense. But I just don't think any of us do real well with this, and I think we we are all called upon to face it. Unfortunately, I think it's because, at least one reason, is because God knows that it's one of those things that just really... We don't learn some of the lessons that we learn through waiting any other way. And it's just... I'm not standing in line for this. You're not standing in line for this. You and I are all products of current American culture. We're used to things happening. And if we can't see them happen, we're used to making them happen. And that's part of what we get into with this very first scene. So there are going to be three scenes here in those chapters. Chapter 16, you have a major player. There's kind of a focus on Hagar here. Not that the other players aren't there. Obviously, Abraham's there. Obviously, Sarah is there, but there's a focus on Hagar. Then we come to chapter 17. The focus is Abraham. That's where his name is changed. And this is just a really, a little small thing. Uh, But, you know, according to some forms of higher criticism, form, form criticism, the book of Genesis was put together through a compilation of different source documents. But one of the things that's really, that's junk, but... (laughs) One of the things that's really interesting about all of that is that, uh, in other words, what I mean is some editor came along and took these these documents and wove some kind of a a narrative together. Well, it's kind of interesting that once God changes his name from Abram to Abraham, you won't find another reference to Abram. I mean, the record is absolutely consistent with exactly what God says. That might be small, but I think that's significant because were it otherwise, we would kind of wonder, this doesn't, you know, sound like it should sound. But Hagar is the the key player here. Abraham will be in chapter 17. Sarah will be the focus 
in chapter 18, the first half of it. So we all are familiar with this story. We read the chapter. I don't think we have to say everything, nor can we say everything. We just don't have time. But I would like to point out, I don't think anybody here has to be convinced this morning that this was a misstep. What happens here is, is really not what's in keeping with God's plan and with what's God's main purpose in the life of Abraham, his servant, and Sarah. We all know that Isaac is the child of promise. It's a little easier to know the story when we have the benefit the story's over with and we can look at the end of it. A little tougher for Abraham and Sarah trying to go through this thing and figure out what was going on. But when you look at what Sarah says here, she, she gives a, a very interesting statement that I think provides some insight. I'm, I'm, I'm showing you some reasons why we can see right away there's problems that are going to happen that, that are going to result out of this. What, what she says is to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and look at this, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. I'm interested in that phrase, obtain children. You may have a marginal reading on it, depending on what kind of a, what your ESV is there. I, mine happens to furnish that, and so I, I, it's, it's easy enough for me to bring that out to you. But what she's really saying is that I may be built up. And that's kind of an Old Testament concept. Um, you would talk about your family in your kinsmen in terms of a house. And so like the house of Aaron or whatever, the house of Abraham, you would speak of it in that way. Here's another verse. Do you remember when um, Boaz uh, commits to marry Ruth and now the, the people of the city are all excited about this? They're pronouncing something of a blessing on uh, this marriage and this couple. And here's what they say. This is Ruth chapter 4, verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. So do you see what's going on here? This is what she's thinking. She's thinking that this promise that God has given her, which talks about multitudes and talks about offspring, even in its earlier stages when it was the most vague, God was still talking about offspring. And it's been this passage of time now. They've been in the land 10 years. I don't mean to, to be too specific about some of these things, but don't you think that they sort of, I mean, obviously they took God at his word. They figured God was going to give them a child. Don't you think they were trying? But what we know is, is that Sarah, before she ever came to the land, was barren. But when God appeared to Abram and said, look, I want you to leave Ur of the Chaldees, and I want you to come into this land that you don't know, and I'm going to do these things. And in the Abrahamic covenant, he, he talks about seed. He talks about offspring. So I'm sure they redoubled their efforts to have a child. And it's been 10 years. Do you think that that might be discouraging to you? I mean, if she wasn't already discouraged because she was barren, and then to have this promise come along, which would sort of inject a little bit of hope, maybe a lot of hope, into her, and then to try for 10 years and just completely draw a blank. Nothing happens at all. She can't, can't and doesn't conceive. And so by way of human reasoning, this is the kind of thing we do, isn't it? I mean, it's natural to us. I mean, God did give us a mind, so it's not wrong to do this, but she thinks to herself, well, maybe this is, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe I've taken this wrong. 
Maybe what God is, is thinking is, is that, well, I, I do have um, the servant. And if you notice the way that blessing was given in Ruth chapter 4, verse 11, it says that Rachel and Leah, which two, built the house of Israel. But how many, that, those were two, but there were four, right? There were also Bilhah and Leah. Uh, Bilhah and Zilpah, sorry. So, um, but yet, it still says those two built up the house of Israel because according to the custom, if you had this situation and the servant uh, woman, in this case Hagar, uh, became kind of a, what do you say, concubine or, it sounds awful to say this, but she wasn't the same status as Sarah, so call it a second string wife or whatever. But I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of revolting to us today to think in those terms. But that according to the custom of the day, that was legitimate. And if you had a situation where you couldn't obtain children and Sarah had proven herself to be barren. So if you, if you had a, a situation where that was true, you could, you could pursue this route. She was, she was actually, she didn't invent something out of the air. She was going along the lines of what was considered customary, and the, any children that Hagar bore, though Hagar was technically their mother, they would be considered Sarah's children. With me, that's what I was trying to say. So th this is what she's thinking, and this is why she's thinking it. And I, I tell you folks, you're not going to get a judgmental spirit out of me on this. It, we can't condone it, but I'm not going to jump up here and, and, and tear Sarah down for this when we struggle with this same kind of thing all the time and make make probably more mistakes than Sarah did. Anyway, it's not good though when we, when we kind of default to human reasoning in things without consulting God. Of course, there's the passage of time, so we've already kind of labored that point some, but for Abram, here's another element. And I, you know, everybody knows that this is true in a marriage. It's not just when a wife pressures her husband, it's times when husbands pressure their wives. But when it's the person you're living with, and it's your mate, that, in some ways that creates a pressure that is, is unique and powerful. I mean, it would be maybe akin to if your boss at work starts pressuring you about something. I mean, because this person is in a position of authority and because this person has certain uh, control over you, it, it creates a pressure so, you know, the language, I'm sure, is kind of genteel and polite, but she may, have, she may have told Abram this any number of times before Abram agreed to do it, you know? But these are all the human factors that go along with this. And if we have any doubt, though, is, have I mischaracterized this? Is, is this being, in spite of all of my efforts to be as kind and gentle as I can with this, have I been unfair? No, because the New Testament definitively settles it when... Paul finds an allegory in this story. It doesn't mean the story isn't true, far from it. It means that it's invested with more meaning than just the actual story. And that's something that God has ordained. And so in this particular verse, we don't have time to get involved in all of it, but in the, this particular Galatians 4.29, let's just look at it. It says, but just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born how? according to the Spirit. So one child was born according to the flesh. It, 
It's the, was the product of fleshly reasoning, of human and self-effort, and an opportunity to sort of speed God along and help God out. And that's how it's characterized by the Bible, and of course we know that proves to be true. And if, if we're wondering, um, it, okay, do, do, do we see anything in the story that would further underscore that this wasn't good? Yeah, we sure do. And um, I hope you could maybe tell a little bit from how I read this, but yeah, okay, so there's some spaces in there that somehow I didn't catch and delete. But then, sorry, the wording is all there. I know why it is. It's because if you look at your outline that I gave you a, a hard copy of, I couldn't fit three, wor three, three occurrences of false in the line and not have it go over into another line. And when you're fighting to make everything fit on one side of a piece of paper, which I was unsuccessful with for next week's lesson, <laughs> um, I just thought, well, I'll just explain what I mean by this. But in the PowerPoint, I put it in. The three untimely fruits that come of this that show us that this was unwise, this was not really of the Lord, false pride, false blame, false innocence. What am I talking about? We'll look at verse 4. And so, he went into Hagar and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress, and that's repeated down in the next verse. Okay, now come on, folks. It is a natural reaction, but it's carnal. The fact that she was able to conceive and to conceive readily doesn't mean she was better than Sarah and gave her no legitimate basis to all of a sudden exalt herself to the criticism of Sarah. And Sarah didn't take it very well, so that leads us to the next thing, which is false blame. I mean, her dander is up. I mean, you can read verse 5. It's hot. And she's hot. And she says to, to Abram, may the wrong done to me, she's talking about Hagar's insult, be on you. Well, <laughs> okay. I mean, that's kind of a false blame. I mean, really, it was her idea. But she lashes out. And how many times have you and I done the same thing? We lashed out in a circumstance and realized, oh, I shouldn't have said that. That really wasn't right. But she's angry. And she lashes out at her husband. And he doesn't do a whole lot better in his response. Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Well, that's, it, that's false innocence because even though Abram is not the initiator, he does agree to do it. He's responsible for his actions. He can't just completely wash his hands of it like Pilate tried to do with Jesus. He can't just completely wash his hands of it and say, Well, la-di-da. That, folks, that's not good. So, I mean, this is not good. And the thing that I want us to take away, see, there's so much more we could talk about. We could talk about the scene at the well, Beer Lahiroi, and all of this, and we just don't have time to do that. There's some great preaching that you can do with the way God so uh, gently re reveals himself to Hagar as the God who sees and the God who listens. There's a lot of great devotional material in that. I mean, when you're... She's on the run, you know, I mean, she runs, and yet God intervenes. God has a different purpose, and even though God has to tell her, go back and submit, she goes back with a real shocker for Abra, Abram and Sarai, because she goes back with a faith message. She goes back all pumped up about God and his faithfulness, and they're the ones who have kind of let that slip. So it's really interesting how all this turns out, but 
I would just say this is the takeaway that I, I want to, we've all observed ourselves, or at least I hope we have, or maybe others have observed us and told us this. It's easier if you do it yourself and kind of realize it, but it's easy to become restless. It's easy to become fidgety. And it's easy to succumb to this idea of, I've got to do something. This is just the years are going by. The time's clicking off the clock. I'm not getting any younger. I'm soon going to be at the place where this is a physical impossibility. Maybe God means something else. And it's really easy to do this. By the way, Psalm 113 and verse 9 was not written at the time, but its truth was certainly known. And it gives a great articulation to the point that we're making here, which is he, that is God, he's the giver of life. He's the one who makes the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. It really sets us up to see what God is going to say to Sarah in chapter 18, which is, and this is, is anything too hard for the Lord? All right, so sorry, we have to move. So we're going to come to chapter 17. Let's read what we're going to read here. We won't read every verse, but most. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, or God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. Excuse me for stopping, but i got to bring this out, and I don't have it as a part of what I'm supposed to say later. <laughs> Can you imagine Abraham going back home, or from wherever he has this vision, but God appears to him, and telling all of his household, which includes 318 servants, and whoever else, and he's 99 years old. And he says, oh, by the way, don't call me Abram any longer, which is exalted father. Call me Abraham, which is father of a multitude. And they're looking at this guy, really? Just think about that. There's some faith got to be involved in a lot of this. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. God is pouring out more information now on purpose. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So it's at this point, which is obviously well before the law, which is a point that Paul makes, that circumcision as a seal of the covenant is introduced. We're not going to take time. That's yeah, another whole theological study and thing we could talk about. Don't have time. Come to verse 15. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, so this will be the last that Sarai is called Sarai, 
You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah, both of them are variations on the word that means princess, shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, watch what happens now. Talk about pouring out more information. I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? He probably heard a few of his servants snicker already. Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And God said to Abraham, and Abraham said to God, sorry, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. He laughs. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes. So Ishmael would always and forever be just a shadow of what God intended through the child of promise. There'd be 12 tribes to come through Jacob, who was the son of Isaac. Twelve princes will come of Ishmael, but they will not be included in the, in the children of promise or in the line of the, of the promise. Um, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Now notice, so we're just going to read a couple more verses here. Um, when he had finished talking with him, so God is done, God went up from Abraham, then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. So let's take a look at this now. So 13 more years pass, more time. The test of waiting. Hard not to become restless when waiting goes on. But we're going to see something else here as the focus now shifts to Abram. God appears specifically to Abram. And why does God do this? I, I offer you a question. I think there's some evidence, and we're going to be looking at some, some thoughts to try to validate this, but obviously we know what the end game is, what God is wanting to do. But... God also wants to focus on his servant, and God knows the condition of his servant's heart. And what's happened to Abraham in the course of those years since that boy was born? This boy's 13 years old now. So something that started out as quite unlikely, nevertheless it's obvious from what Abraham says later in the chapter, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He obviously not only accepted the boy, but become very fond of him. That's usually what happens with men who are decent fathers. And so the other thing that's happened is 13 more years, and Abraham's, maybe he doesn't have a mirror in his bathroom like we do, but he's not dumb. And, and we're told this in Romans 4, where we're going to look in just a few moments. He knows his body's dead. He knows what he's capable of. And again, I'm not trying to be too specific, but he... He knows what he's capable of and what he's not. And he certainly knows also what Sarah is capable of and, and not. And his body was dead, and according to Romans 4, her womb was dead. And 
Even the chapter is going to tell us that it has ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So it has gotten to the place where it's a physical impossibility for them both. Unless God intervenes and does something special. So what would happen to you? Probably the same thing that happened with Sarah. She was fidgeting around trying to figure out, it's 10 years, nothing's happened. God hasn't reversed my barrenness. Now Abraham's looking at this thing. 13 more years have gone by. We're not getting any younger. Maybe Ishmael, maybe Sarah was right. And has he kind of settled down to become comfortable with the status quo, which is Ishmael? Let me put it to you this way. How easy it is sometimes to get to the place where after the passage of time and you just keep being beat down and beat down and beat down, that you surrender the dream and you're willing to accept second best. Not God's best, but what you can get. This is tough. So what do we have here? I have to go kind of quickly, but first of all, how does God choose to reveal himself? He says, I am Almighty God, and it's the first time he refers to himself as El Shaddai in the Bible. What does it mean, Almighty God? Why does he need to tell Abraham he's the Almighty God? Because is anything too hard for the Lord if he's the Almighty God? Good to remember, easy to forget. Secondly, there's an exhortation that I think you could well interpret as an exhortation to a more attentive walk at the end of the first verse, walk before me and be thou perfect, as the King James says, or here, walk before me and be blameless. In other words, if God ascertained that Abraham was becoming a little inattentive to the promise and kind of just becoming comfortable and accepting the status quo, maybe it's time to kind of stir up the gift of God which is in you, so to speak, as Paul said. So he comes and gives that exhortation, but once he moves through the information that he wants to give, he explicitly rules Ishmael out. So when you get to verses 15 and 16, it doesn't get any clearer, but see, this is what's happened. We've moved systematically from, okay, first he thought, well, in chapter 15, maybe it's Eliezer. God said, no, it isn't going to be Eliezer in chapter 15. Then they thought, well, maybe it's Ishmael. And God says, no. It's not Ishmael. Ishmael's not the child of promise. And so he says, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah, I will bless her and more. We'll look at this. I will give you a son by her. It doesn't get any more clear now. There's only one way that can happen. And that's what they had really kind of hoped all along and had been really hoping all their married lives Think about that. One's 100, one's 99, one's 89. And God says, I'm going to make it happen. But God completely shuts them up to the supernatural. It's the only way it can happen. And Abram's reaction to this is understandable. I think we have to characterize this as disbelief, not unbelief. Again, I would appeal to the context to make that statement, and I would appeal to the commentary of the New Testament, which is just what we're going to do. Because it does rub us a little bit wrong when we talk about and think of Abram as the, you know, the hero of faith, but at this particular juncture, he laughs. 
And so that's kind of deflating. And we have to, what we have to really be careful here is, is that we don't judge Abram by his first initial response. Because his first response won't be his settled opinion. And that's what the context shows us. But he also makes this plea for Ishmael. And there's something to learn in this too, folks, because you know the way of faith is hard. And what, it, what he's really trying to say to God in so many words, this is actually a great preaching text. Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. What he's really saying to God is, why does it always have to be so hard? Why can't we just work this out with Ishmael? I mean, he's here. He's healthy. He's strong. Why do we got to keep talking about this faith thing and all? Well, that's kind of how we are. I mean, faith is not always easy, especially when it's tested like this. But again, the context which... I mean, when he says the seal of the covenant is, and you're going to you know, do this, I mean, he does it right away. And I, I wouldn't imagine a man 99 or a boy 13 are standing in line for this procedure. But yet, I mean, there's no noncompliance here. I mean, there's an immediate obedience. Why would you do that if you didn't, if your settled opinion wasn't that God means business? God is going to fulfill this. God really is going to do this. And it's like God, it's like the whole reason that God comes to him and focuses on him in this chapter is because he's gotten a little bit listless. He's lost his spiritual energy and vitality and God wants to revive him. Oh, to me, what a mercy that is. That happens so frequently in our spiritual lives. We just get to the place where life beats us down. And we just kind of become listless and, and apathetic and lethargic. And God says, you know, I need to get this guy on the road again. Boy, he sure does that. I mean, Abraham rushes out. and I don't imagine anybody in the household was too thrilled either. But they all did it. That commentary in the New Testament, and I'll just be as brief with this as I can, he did not weaken in faith. The Bible has to have the final word. So by context, it's clear by Paul's commentary in the New Testament, it's clear when he considered. Now, I hope I have time to point this out to you, but notice the word considered. It's going to come up again in the next verse. I want you to see that word. He did not weaken in faith when he considered. When he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered, same word again in the original, the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted for righteousness. This is what I was talking about last week. So that text, which we tend to relate to his salvation experience, isn't just limited to that. That, that was my point last week, however successful I was or not in conveying it. It is that. It is Paul's grand text of justification. But more than likely, Abram had that faith in Ur of the Chaldees when he left, when God converted him from idolatry. And then in Genesis 15, when he's talking to him, it's quoted again because he, he continues to respond this way to God. And this is what I'm, I'm trying to say to us. Now in chapter 17, he continues to respond this way to God. So the verse is quoted again because faith is a journey. Faith is not a one-time thing. If spiritual life consists of it. God is growing our faith. How about Sarah? Just time maybe to do this. Let's read the verses so that we 
and, and the Lord appeared to him by the oaks, to, to Abram, that is, by the oaks of Mamre. So Mamre's a person. This is the neighborhood of Hebron. As he sat by the door of his tent in the heat of the day, gets hot, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed his, himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Abram went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour. That's a lot. Knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. Everything's quick. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them, stood, stood by them under the tree while they ate. And they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? So, okay, do you get the impression? The focus is now Sarah. God has put in this next appearance. Notice verse one, the Lord appeared to him. But Sarah is going to be the immediate focus. Why is that? You've got to have them both on board. I mean, like Ronald Reagan used to say, it's a secular expression, but it takes two to tango. It, this doesn't work if Sarah's not on board. And there are some evidences that what happened to Abram and Abraham was happening to her, maybe more so even. I mean, she was living with a body she knew was incapable of doing this. And so he appears. Where is Sarah, your wife? And said, she, he, Abram said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, if you don't think the Bible is realistic or has humor, read the next phrase. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. I love that one. But men do it too. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, so Sarah laughed. They both laughed to herself, this is kind of under her breath, and saying, and she's, just, she's right down to the brass tacks with what she says here. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? So you can see that she's thinking in terms of physical ideas. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a son now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And so say what you will about Sarah. She also makes a misstep in the beginning. Her initial reaction is not what we should judge her by. But at the same point, kind of glad she had that little episode because out of it came one of the greatest texts in the Bible. Is anything too hard for the Lord? A text which if you consult the book of Jeremiah, you will find that God quotes to Jeremiah and on and on it goes. So we have a, a tremendous thing come out of this. God brings such good out of this. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. And about this time next year, Sarah shall have a son. Now, this is the bummer. Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, you did. <laughs> Just remember, he's already shown us in chapter 16. He's the God who sees and hears. 
All right, so what can we say about this? Well, you look at our responses to all of this, which I've kind of already commented on and don't have really time to do more with, and then you look at how God responds back to her, and you can see that she's not fully convinced. She's not, not fully on board that this is a, I'm looking at it myself and I'm knowing it. And so God comes to her, and this is what I want to, I do want to have time for this. She overcomes, just as Abraham did her initial incredulity. Hebrews 11.11 tells us this. So once again, the New Testament overrules any idea that we should judge her by her initial reaction. Her initial reaction may not have been good, but it was not her settled opinion. Where's that verse? By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive when she was past the age. Since she, what's that word? Considered. But it's a different word in the original than the one that was used by Paul twice of Abram. What's it mean? Well, the one that was used of Abram has the idea of con to consider in the sense of carefully notice. So he carefully noticed the physical parameters of the thing and it wouldn't work. This one means in the, to consider in the sense of regard. There's a great way to get to the bottom of this. Let me just take a quick second. I hope my fingers can be fast to give you a cross-reference on this that might help you a little bit with what I'm trying to say here. Hebrews 11, 26, same chapter, it's used again when it says that Moses, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You see, that has to be faith, because by sight you can see the treasures of Egypt. It takes faith to see the other thing to make a mental determination that what I see isn't as important as what I don't see, which is God's promise. And that's where Sarah lands. So we have to, we have to say this. So we don't have time, we have to pray, but I just want to say to you folks, and I, I uh, point there, I think she had kind of drifted into some hopelessness, and that's probably happened to a lot of people here. So be careful. Be careful to how you judge. But this is one of the most difficult trials in Christian experience. And may God use what we've looked at here in the scripture today to encourage us. People struggled with it of old and people struggle with it today. And it really takes close dependence on the Lord to come through these things. Lord, bless us now as we move to our next service in Jesus' name. Amen.